with poetry, it's not, it's not just that it's a way to express oneself. I think poetry actually helps construct who you are. Welcome to Arts In, also known as AI, the podcast produced by Creative Canellis. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and today I am with Helen Pruitt-Wallace, who is a poet and is also the Poet Laureate for St. Petersburg. Uh, thank Helen, you, Barbara. Welcome. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> so you have a poem really about St. Petersburg, and I think it's called Pink Streets. Mm. And I was reading it this morning, and what really struck me is that you and T.S. Eliot had a connection for me because when I first read T.S. Oh, wow. Eliot, right, when <laughs> I, I first love that. read T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland, there were all these references in it that I did not know. Ah. You know, in order to start to understand the poem, I had to look up those references. And so I was reading your poem, Pink Streets, which is just lovely. Thank and you. you were talking about Maxwell Smart and Mary Kay, even Twinkies, Charles <laughs> Chips, and I, or Inagata DeVito. And I was like, people reading this poetry today in this generation mm. will have to go find out what the references yeah, for those that's are. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And actually, that can be problematic because some will take the time to do that and some won't. It felt still important to me to include them in the poem because I felt like this poem really needed to be grounded in that time and place, because it's really about that. It's about that time and about that location. The location is the Pink Streets, which is a neighborhood in St. Petersburg, and that's where I spent a lot of my childhood. And the streets really are pink. You know, they're pink concrete, which if you're not from here, people are astonished by that. But it was such a, and still is, I think, just a wonderful neighborhood, kind of quirky, and there's just something magical about it. So where physically is that? What streets between yeah, so, what and what? So 62nd Avenue South, and I would say over, oh man, maybe maybe 28th or 29th toward the west. Then it goes all the way down south to the Skyway Bridge. Mm-hmm. We looked out on the bridge and the water. And then to the east, maybe 9th Street. And the streets are still pink. Yes. Yes, I remember they tried to, to turn them into black asphalt and there was just major uproar and nobody wanted them to do it. You, know, you scribble things on the backs of napkins or on a bathroom mirror or, you know, and I had always done that. I think I was very influenced by music. Mm-hmm. I love Simon and Garfunkel, James Taylor, Bob Dylan, listened to a lot of music growing up. And I, I think I kind of came to poetry through my love of music. I think so many of us gravitate toward rhyme. They're in the nursery rhymes that we're raised on and rhythm and yeah. I'm very curious about poets and how a person stays with poetry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I went to a writer's workshop once and they were like, don't be a poet because poets can't make a living. <laughs> a lot of pressures on people yeah. in poetry not to be poets. And yet mm-hmm. people insist on being poets. Yeah. Yeah. They... It took me a long time to call myself a poet. And looking back and what I've said to my students, you know, really a, a poet is, is someone who I believe writes poetry and practices it as a craft. If you do that, whether or not you're published, I think you can own that mm-hmm. and calling yourself a poet. But I didn't feel like that really until I did start publishing my own poems. I come from a family of doctors where many of them were passionate about medicine. They loved, you had the old fashioned doctors who truly loved healthcare, you know, really loved practicing medicine. And when I was in college and graduate school, well, I was an English major, but I took, I think, my father's love of medicine and paired it with my love of language. Mm. And 
went into speech language pathology. And so even now when I write poems, I'm, I, one ear is thinking of language with that in my background. The sounds of the words are constantly playing and I'm thinking about words as plosives and a cesara, which is a pause in the middle of a sentence can be very powerful, you know? And it's often caused by a plosive or some, some little, you know, puff of air that gives you that momentary stop. And it's not caused by punctuation, but it can affect the rhythm of a poem tremendously. So little things like that become important, the shapes of the sounds and your, the way your mouth moves when you say mm-hmm. sounds. So I mean, it's kind of an odd thing, but I, but I come at it also medically. I, I know that sounds very bizarre, but it's, I think it's true for me. And also I studied with Peter Meinke and mm-hmm. Peter, you know, he'll tell you that the sounds of poems are far more important than the meaning of poems. When I revise my poems, I often go by ear. I want to go back to your your father because you have a poem that is about a surgeon who gets surgery. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the ones that just sort of stopped me short. It's funny because this poem is one of the first poems I wrote in Peter Mikey's class. (laughs) When I audited it, my husband and I had moved back to St. Pete and I had always loved Peter's work. At that point, again, I was in speech-language pathology. But I took his class. He was kind enough to just let me be in there. And this is a poem I wrote during that time. It's a form. It's called an octavorima. Each stanza is made up of eight lines. And, and there's a rhyme scheme that you'll hear that comes all the way through the poem. But it's the eight-line stanza. The octava comes from that. And I often, I often do write in form, although more and more I like to mess it up so you wouldn't necessarily recognize it as a form. But this was after my father had had an operation, mm-hmm. and um, he was a terrible patient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but would you like me to read it? Yes, please. Okay. All right. The surgeon as patient. The surgeon under a surgeon's knife feels the slit of each incision he ever cut. His own body, his life throbs with the mock of each decision to excise when oat bran could suffice. As morphine liquefies his vision, he shudders at the gnaw of grating bone, sewing's more fun than being sewn. Post-op and pulsing unaware, the patient dreams he left his pocked skin, nubbed with cysts, wadded on the bed, and split without consent. His ivy bag, a purse around his wrist, he clambered down the hall with such lament he woke himself, humidifying mist circling in clouds about his head. If this is heaven, we're terribly misled. Discharged, he vows, renewed compassion for arteries hard and thick as trees and murmuring hearts that skip and ration beats. Acupuncture might someday succeed and chicken soup will always be in fashion. Perhaps a surgeon should consider these. But lunching, lost in thought with fork and scapel, trembling, the surgeon peels his apple. Mm. So. so for me, it's so interesting because there's a lot of S's and surgeons and incisions and oh, yeah. those sounds. And then at the end, the resolution of apple. Yeah. It's so lovely. Thank you. Well, you know, I think the other thing that, for me anyway, as a poet, is at least as important as sound or, or I don't know, right up there with it, is concrete imagery and letting images carry the work. That was... The main thing I tried to convey to my students at Eckerd was, you know, we know the world through our senses. They need to be in your poems. Put the stuff of the world in your poems. I'm a big believer in that. And to be honest, every rule can be broken. And, And I know that there are good poets out there who can also write an abstract poem and do it well. 
I'm more comfortable in the terrain of imagery, though. Giving people ways to imagine in their own minds, to experience what they're hearing and create a picture in their own mind or a sound. Right. That's how you invite the reader into your work, I think. Otherwise, you're sort of talking at them. But if you really want them to come into the poem with you, the world of the poem with you, to experience it, for me, it's done through imagery. The poem about the cardinal. Ah, that's a villanelle. A hidden villanelle, but it's a villanelle, yeah. And that's very detailed, but presents itself to me, and as a reader anyway, as a poem about a bird and about nature. And as I'm sort of reading it, it doesn't, it doesn't stay a poem about a bird or nature. Yeah, so that's the tricky part about metaphor, right? It has to work on two levels. It has to work literally, so it is a poem about a bird. But then it goes somewhere else, too, and it's talking about something else, too. And a lot of the poems in this book, Shimming the Glass House, yes. which was my, my first book, were written for my brother. I had a younger brother who died in a plane accident when he was had just turned 25. Mm. He was passionate about skydiving and just a really great guy. And when I wrote many of the poems in this book, I was still really dealing with that grief. So I think the book has a sort of elegiac tone. But having said that, we did indeed have a cardinal for the longest time at our house, who would just throw himself at our window. You know, we would try to cover the window with small things or, you know, move furniture in front of it, but it never really did the trick. But somehow that became connected to uh, the things that we keep trying and trying to work through. And it became a metaphor for, I think, for the grieving process somewhat for me. And as I said, it's a villanelle, which is a French form. It's the 19-line poem, and it works with two different rhyme schemes. What I've done here, though, is I've broken it up quite a bit. So technically, you're supposed to be also repeating two lines all the way through the poem. But the way a lot of contemporary poets do now when they're working in form is they mix it up. You know, Mm -hmm. they change it. They turn it a bit on its head. So instead of repeating the whole lines, I'll repeat just a couple words. It's a way of just playing with the form and making it feel a little more new. Cardinal at the bedroom window. Red wing, black beak, and eye whirling mad at the pain, whacking it over and over as if to crack a life he never led, or were a wound that never bled nor healed. Crazed as a thwarted lover, red wing, black beak, and eye whirling mad. And in the room, a chair, table and bed, nothing to lure a bird, yet how he hovers before this crack of light, A life never led haunts us like something inside bread of fear. What can we do when suffering that wing, beak, and eye whirls madly around us? Listen to him knock. Should we, do we dare, let him in? Or just cover the crack of the life never led, hoping he'll leave? Some wounds never bled, though we worried them over and over. Red wing, black beak, and eye whirling mad, what happens to lives never led. So Jane Hirschfeld is one of my favorite poets, and she read for us at the Dali a couple years ago. She was fabulous. And I'm not going to get this exactly right, but she quotes Kafka as saying that literature, of course, including poetry, is the axe that cracks open the frozen sea inside us. But then she goes on to say, and we are beings in need of breaking open if we're to know the true dimensions of who we are. Right. 
I think all literature, and maybe you'd say most creative arts, have that capacity. You know, they have the knack for being able to do that. And I think poetry, poetry certainly does have the knack for doing it, especially... I'm a big believer in reading it aloud, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and in fact, in writing it aloud, I would always encourage my students to actually early drafts, say them aloud, you know, because you're going to hear things you won't necessarily see on the page. And ideally, I think in a good poem, it is the sounds, it is the imagery, it's also the shape of the poem on the page. I mean, there's so many things that a good poem strives to do all at one at one time, and. I think the reason it tries to do those things is because it, again, at least when I'm working on a poem, I'm trying to write a poem that the reader will stop and try to enter. Mm-hmm. So they don't see themselves as just reading the words on the page and keeping that distance. Rather, they they experience the world of the poem. And certainly many of my poems don't get there, um, but but that's what you try for. You right, know? Right. And you know, it's interesting because if you think about reading response theory, where we bring our own experiences, our own past events to the words on the page and where they intersect is where some moment of, of meaning is created. But then when we go back and read it again, there's a new experience. I mean, I think even over time, we're we're always moving, we're always changing, and I think it makes what we read also new to us. The key is to write a poem that's good enough that makes somebody want to go back and read it again. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and that's where you get into a balance that I'm always, always feel like I'm negotiating, which is the extent to which you make your work clear without simplifying it too much. I love lyric essays, and I call, you know, gosh, should I call them lyric essays? I don't know. Creative nonfiction, all those terms to me are a little bit problematic because to me, anything we write is creative. But I guess what it's trying to get at is it's avoiding a linear argumentative sort of essay. It's, it's coming at the material in a different light. And I love to write it. I taught it also at Eckerd. The, the lyric essay is a neat hybrid. It's a mix between poetry and prose. It explores an idea. You know, the word essay comes from the French word essai, which means to try. So with an essay, you're always trying to understand something. You're grappling with an idea. And lyric essay is doing that, but it's doing it through imagery, imagery and metaphor, like poetry does. So it's not doing it chronologically. It's coming at, again, that grappling through the use of images. And so I love it. It's, it's mm-hmm. great fun. I've had one published in River Teeth and then a magazine called Sweet. It, it's my next favorite genre. And what um, were you grappling with in that one? The one in Sweet. The one in Sweet is directly about my mother's memory loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but trying to capture some of the um, daily more humorous things. She's so spirited when she went to her neurologist one time and he you know how they give you the the test of the clock and you're supposed to be able to draw a clock and put all the hands and the, the numbers on it and then they ask you a series of questions, one right after the other, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And they tell you from the start, in 10 minutes, I'm going to ask you to go back and answer this one. And so my mother is just, she's handling it so beautifully. She's totally flunking it, you know. But she's keeping her grace about her and, and gets to the end. She hasn't been able to answer any of the questions. And of course, she can't do the clock. And my mother was always big into yoga. And mm. so she did a lot of yoga and was very flexible. At the end of the session, when she hadn't done well, she shook his hand and said, thank you. And then she went immediately, flat palms to the floor, <laughs> and kind of did a little dance and then stood back up and put her hands on her hip and looked at him and said, can you do that? <laughs> you know? Oh, that's great. And that's that's the part of her spirit, I hope, somehow in my poems and or essays, I can, I can bring to the surface, show people, because I think it's a big part still of who she is. 
So my mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It's been over 15 years now. You know, she continued to read for a long time. She loves music. And I, I feel strongly that there's a real core part of her that despite the fact that she no longer could say who I am, she recognizes me. And there's a part of her spirit that's still very much alive. And I've been writing a series of, of poems about that. You know, when somebody first comes down with this, at least for my mother, one of the first things she did, she took everything out of her drawers. Mm. And we, had, at that point, had no idea she was having a problem. And we came home, and there would be things all over that she had pulled from drawers. So every time we went to her house, things were moved and changed. And this poem came out of came out of that. It is a form. It's called a rondelette, which is a syllabic poem, a certain number of syllables per line. And you'll hear a repetition of a line three times in the poem. So it's called The House Where Everything Moves, and it's in segments. One... I am the house where everything moves. Behind walls, I am the house that crumbles, disappears. See how nothing holds. The stairs shift and halls lead nowhere safe. Still, despite all, I am the house. Two, I am the key predictably lost again. How deft I am, the key that never fits. I slip with ease, like her memories fall bereft through some dark crack. A hole is left. I am the key. Three. I am a purse, hidden away, to conceal I am a purse. Forgotten for days, until the worst odor of something scorched reels from a preheated oven, revealing I am a purse. Four, I am a face she once knew well, the mouth, the eyes. I am a face she cups and fingertips with a grace reserved for those she loved. She tries to conjure who I am. She cries, I am a face. Five, I am the words no longer recalled that claimed I am. The words scattered like flocks of small birds that startled don't return in rain. Here, what vanishes has no name. I am the words. Nature kind of went out of vogue at some point. It wasn't cool to write nature poems anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, but I got to tell you, I don't buy into that. I, I could never be a strictly urban poet. I like a mix, but but to me, the, the natural world is endlessly fascinating. <laughs> you know, and a lot of a lot a lot of times, I'll get ideas by looking at Audubon or science magazines, and you know, doing some research actually, and pull from that to either get the poem going or to open the poem back up again. Politics is one of those things that supposedly we're not supposed to write about, mm -hmm. according to some people. There's an argument to what extent does mm. politics belong in poetry. I, I happen to believe it does, but it has to be done carefully because if we're too didactic, we lose our readers right away. I found Pink Streets to be quite political. The mm -hmm. Vietnam and also mm -hmm. the reference to what was happening. Yeah, you're right, to, with race. To, yeah. yeah, you're right. 
Yeah, it is. Uh huh. You're right. It is. It's kind of woven in. I think I don't fall into the camp that believes you have to stay away from uh, from politics and poetry. I just I just think you have to do it the right way. And one of the things I'm trying hard to do at the Dali, we've had some terrific people of color reading there, and I see that as part of my mission as poet laureate. Is to, you know, there's so many so many good poets out there, and so many different kinds of poems. I think poetry should have a big umbrella that includes a lot of diversity. So I'm trying to kind of find ways to encourage that more through my role as Poet Laureate. Our memories do change, they're in flux. What we experience and come back to has shifted because we're new people every time we come back to it. There's a lot of that sort of grappling. I don't have the answers, I grapple with them. Right. But I think it's important to hang tight to the body, of the senses because I think maybe that's our best shot at hanging on to memories, is keeping it close to what we experience sensually. Maybe that's what we're doing when we're writing, is we're, we're putting that imprint on the here, the now, <laughs> or the then, you know? Yeah. Or who we were then and how it attaches to who we, who are, we are now. now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. While giving ourselves room to change, I'm a big believer in people reinventing themselves, especially, especially women. I taught not only in the traditional younger program at Eckerd, but also in the Pell program. And I had so many terrific students in that program. Many of them were women. Several went on to grad school once they finished, and they were much older. I had a woman who was 81 years old, oh my and goodness. she had illustrated several children's books, but she'd never written one. So she wanted to come back and get a degree in creative writing at Eckerd. And when she finished, she went on, she was accepted at the Savannah School of Design. <laughs> Age wow. 81. Yeah, which is fabulous. Yeah, I, I, I really believe in that, that kind of reinventing the self. Um, so how are you reinventing yourself then? I think wanting to practice different genres is, is one way. Getting more into nonfiction and giving myself the leeway to... You know, some material feels bigger than what you can do in a poem, even a long poem. Pink Streets, is a, that's a long poem for me. So, But sometimes some subject matter just feels like it needs maybe even more of that. But, you know, also my, our kids are grown. There are other mm -hmm. places. They're happy. There's a shift, I think, that, that we all feel, men as well, when, when our kids are self-sufficient on their own. <laughs> you know, there's a kind of life change, I think, that happens with, uh, with that. Our daughter just finished her medical residency program in wow. emergency medicine. She and her wife are both emergency room doctors. And your son? So he's in business. He's in Boston. And he just recently got married. And in fact, there's an appointment here. It's called Choosing the Right Bride. Check the angle of her wrist when she talks. Is it cocked, palm up, or fallen like a tulip after frost? Will she be a thrower of darts? If she walks a dog on a beach, who carries the stick? If she draws a line in the sand, does she erase it? She's an antique plate. Would she rather be shattered or gather dust in a closet? Is she sure? Will she change her mind? Does she bake? Does she clean? Is she kind? Is she mean? Will your shirts be as white as a white picket fence in the right magazine? Does she add garlic to each dish she cooks? Can she steam rice without lifting the lid? And gravy, can she make gravy? Will she starch hand towels for a guest bathroom? Collect tiny soaps and candy bowls? How many soap operas can she name by heart? If she finds you reading this guide, will she rip it up, then leave you in a single pool of light? She's the one. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I would truly have any say, but I was hoping he'd gravitate toward the kind of woman who was 
enough of her own person that she wouldn't fall into some of those stereotypes. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things I feel strongly about is that with, with poetry, it's not, it's not just that it's a way to express oneself. I think poetry actually helps construct who you are. And, and I, I, I actually, I think that's true for a lot of the creative arts and, and why I believe so much we need to have more funding in the arts. Because I think a lot of, a lot of kids, struggling kids, can get such a sense of identity through allowing themselves to take the time and, and the energy to, I mean, it feels like a luxury, to explore the arts. Because I think it, it, part of who they will become will happen in that creative process. It's not just about expressing what they want to say or, or what they're painting or what they're you know, playing with in clay. I, I think truly part of who we are, our self-identities are created in that creative act. You then define yourself as somebody who creates things. Yeah, creates things and is created by. Well, Helen Pruitt-Wallace, thank you so much. This thank has you. been a wonderful conversation. Thank I'm you. so delighted that you are here. I've enjoyed it. I feel like I have all kinds of questions to ask you guys. <laughs> I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.